Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. In this episode, sociologist Michaela DeSusi shows us the political side of authentic food. Her work explains how organizations and states influence our tastes in cuisine ranging from foie gras to beer, and we discuss how the industrialization of food production has changed the status of lower-income people in national culture. Michaela DeSusi, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Now, while you've done a lot of work at the intersection of social movements and the cultural politics of food, I think you may be most well-known for this award-winning article you published in the American Sociological Review in 2010. Uh, Pieces of that article are now coming together in an upcoming book called Contested Tastes, The Gastropolitics of Foie Gras. And that book deals with the way that people in France and the United States use foie gras as a marker of certain cultural values. So for listeners that might not be familiar, could you explain what foie gras is briefly and why it's so important to the people in your study? Yes, foie gras is the liver, the fattened liver of a force-fed duck or goose. In the U.S. it is only ducks and in France it is a mix of ducks and geese. What happens is the ducks or geese are raised on farms and then the last couple of weeks of their life they are brought into um, something called gavage in French, which the best translation into English is really force feeding, um, where they are fed several times a day for a few seconds apiece with a tube, designed specifically to fatten their livers. The argument from foie gras producers and supporters is that this mimics a natural process, that ducks and geese fatten themselves in the wild pre-migration. The idea is also that um, this is a reversible process, that if you stop the force feeding, the liver will go back to normal. Um, And so the question becomes, is this cruel? Is this torture? Is this some type of malady? Or is this something that is natural? Um, Culinarians, um, food lovers, proclaim foie gras to be one of the most delicious tastes in the world. Um, It's part of French culinary tradition and history, part of their national culinary building project, and today is a significant industry there. It employs about 30,000 people um, in tourism and farms. There's a distinction in France between artisanal foie gras farming and industrial foie gras farming, which is some of the politics there in that country today around it is about that. Um, In the U.S., it's really become a microcosm of animal welfare and animal rights in the food system, and thinking about the ways that we treat animals, um, treat the animals that become our meat and our food. So uh, you also kind of uh, make the argument in your piece that uh, foie gras serves as a particularly important marker of cultural identity, particularly in France. Could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, for sure. Um, What I found in my research was I went into it thinking that foie gras was this symbol of French identity, um, French culinary identity, French food identity. It's very similar there to the way that we think of Thanksgiving turkey here in the U.S. It is something that is eaten um, on special occasions for celebratory reasons by most people in the country. Um, 
it's also become more of an everyday food as well. And what I found, I thought it was going to be this very small industry that had this special emblematic appeal. And what I found through my historical research and on the ground research was that it really is a very large industrialized market and industry. And my article talks about how that is a product of um, collaboration between the French government and agricultural industries in order to develop this market and create that took something that was symbolically French and grow it to the point that it is very entrenched in the landscape and in people's mindsets and in people's ideas about what it means to be French and to eat French food. And now when there are um, social movements and groups both in France and in other countries in Europe who want to cease foie gras production altogether, um, the French government has essentially stepped in and in 2005 um, legally declared foie gras part of the officially protected gastronomic patrimony of France. And the testimony from the Senate, the French Senate, says it is that was done, quote unquote, in advance of the good spirits of Brussels coming down and taking away from us that which is ours. So it was a way, it has been a way for the French state to essentially give the finger to groups who want it to be banned mm -hmm. as a practice. Okay, so so one of the points I think you make in that 2010 article is that um, these cultural politics of foie gras that we're talking about, and maybe the cultural politics of food in general, work on both a macro and a micro level, right? So on the one hand, um, you said you, you mentioned that you looked at the legal actions undertaken by the French state, or you might do that with multinational NGOs. But on the other hand, I think you stress the importance of local level connections to big political projects like the one that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so in order to cover all of that ground, you borrow this ethnographic approach from a recent guest on our podcast, um, Michael Burgoy, but you also blend some quantitative work with the traditional take on his extended case method. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you decided on the particular blend of methods you used in the foie gras project? And uh, maybe what kinds of questions did it help you to answer? Um. Well, I, the data collection that I started doing was this ethnographic case where I was in France, literally in the fields, um, and doing interviews with people throughout the country, farmers and producers and chefs, and knew I needed to figure out how foie gras fit into kind of the politics of food authenticity more generally. Foie gras also has a PGI label, which is a designation of origin label from the European Union's system of origin labeling. And when I was in the Southwest, I saw signs of this everywhere. And so one of the things I did once I returned from the field was put together a database of every food that has received one of these labels in all of Europe mm. um, in terms of what it was, what category of food it fell into, what country it comes from, the when it received the label, the the number average number of producers, the size of the producer association, um, and then demographic data about the countries and GDPs and agricultural land, and and so the quantitative component of that article is looking at kind of the politics of food authenticity and entrenchment 
from a more state point of view, a national point of view, asking why do some countries have a lot more of these labels than others? And what is it about the ways that food and culture intersect with politics that allowed that to happen? Because some countries do have significantly more than others. And it's not about agricultural production. It's not about population density. Um, the necessary and sufficient condition that I identified was an organizational infrastructure for a producer association that extended back to in time and familiarity with different types of labeling systems. Did that country have other types of labeling systems before the European Union project came into being? And so that is for me, what I found is that's what identifies which countries have a larger number. And then the micro level is exploring how does that play out in practice? That obviously we all eat, right? <laughs> Food is an important part of many people's lives. And thinking about your relationship with the place that you live is often mediated by food. Um, and so unlike larger state policies that might not affect people in their everyday lives, food is something that we have to be thinking about and is also a very large industry. Mm -hmm. That one of the reasons for the European Union coming together as it did was to provide a common market for countries that were battered after World War II to prevent anything from getting worse and to create some type of market system that would be able to withstand the United States and United States agricultural producers coming in. And today, agriculture absorbs about 50% of EU funds in general. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about something that exists at all levels, both national state, international state, transnational state levels, markets, companies, transnational companies, all the way down to where the food is produced, how it's marketed, how it's identified as based in particular places, and then who's eating it. Hmm. Um, I want to come back to the comments you were making about ethnography a little bit to mm -hmm. talk about, I don't know, the way that um, this particular kind of cultural politics gets embodied in a real sense in, in the form of taste, right? And I should mention that you've written a bit about the challenges faced by ethnographers who study the meanings behind culturally important foods like mm -hmm. foie gras. Um, in particular, I'm thinking about this article that you published with Elizabeth Cherry and Culture Ellis, in which you mentioned that foie gras chefs um, that you talked to would sometimes seem to question maybe whether a person raised outside of French culture could understand the richness of meaning embodied in such a very specific French cuisine. Mm -hmm. And as you say, like the the landscape that that embodies, right? So I don't know, could you tell us a bit more about how you've navigated the issue of embodied meaning in your work on taste? Very, yes, great, great question. Um, that was an incredibly fun article to put together. Mm. And it really let me think a lot about what ethnography and qualitative methods do and can do and can't do. Um, we three came together based on the fact that we were all studying similar topics, ideas about human-animal interactions and consumption, but yet had very, very different experiences based on who we were and how we were approaching data collection. Um, Liz is a professor at Manhattanville College right now, 
and her dissertation was about animal rights activists in the U.S. and France. Coulter was at the University of Colorado, he's now at Montana State, and his dissertation was about ranching and ranchers. It was originally going to be a study of masculinity, but it became a as more of a symbolic interactionist study about um, meat production. And we, real we three realized that we could never have done each other's projects. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of reflexive ethnography talks about race and class and gender identities in terms of collecting data, access, analysis, but very little focuses on consumption identities in terms of what you will or will not consume as an individual doing the ethnography yourself. And so for me, I could never have done Liz's project because she was with animal rights activists doing animal rights activist things. Um, and, she could and she is a vegan and could never have done my project, um, mm. in part because I was on these farms, you know, in these kitchens, in these slaughterhouses, and in terms of embodied taste, often, both in France and in the U.S., people would not trust me, would not meet with me, would not mm. open up to me until I ate in front of them. <laughs> until I ate foie gras or other foods in front of them, mm -hmm. including in two different occasions, on two different farms, bits of raw liver that were nicked from the liver of a duck that had been killed less than five minutes before <laughs> and held out to me on a knife with, here, take it. It's like cookie dough. You eat raw cookie dough. It's just <laughs> like that. Um, and so as an American coming in, especially there was into France, there was a lot of, who are you? Why are you here? Why is an American interested in this? Mm -hmm. um, this is a very French thing. You don't know what we're doing. You don't know what we're talking about. All of you people love George Bush. Who are you? Because this was, well, I was there at the time of George Bush's presidency. And the embodied taste aspect is once I sat down to eat with people or they saw me actually put the food into my mouth and chew and swallow, the mood changed, the attitude changed. Um, I was then invited to people's homes to meet their families. Um, people opened up in ways that they had not before. And so this idea of thinking about ethnography and conducting qualitative research when we are out in the field, I think that we need to be thinking about how we present ourselves, mm -hmm. who we are, and then what we are or are not willing to do. If I wasn't willing and able to eat those foods in front of people, I would have had a very different project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, speaking of, um, I guess, cultural positionality, uh, I'd be really curious to know if you found that the consumption of foie gras tends to mark not just you as a researcher, but French citizens themselves as more or less essentially French by virtue of, say, their ability to afford to eat high cuisine, right? Um, I don't know, what, what effects might gastro-nationalism have on the separation of, for example, classes in mm -hmm. French society? That's a great question. And I mean, in some ways, I think the question shows our impressions of what foie gras is, because mm -hmm. it is one of those markers of expensive high cuisine here in the States. Mm -hmm. One of mm -hmm. the aspects of the industrialized system of foie gras production in France is that it is relatively inexpensive. Hmm. Um, a can of it costs, a small can of it costs about the same as a small can of tuna fish. Hmm. Um, you can buy it in just about every supermarket, every chain store, every 
uh, Carrefour or Leclerc or any of those stores. You can buy it on at outdoor markets. There are specialty shops. Um, it's on something like 75 or 80 percent of restaurant menus, including little corner bistros. And in the Southwest, you can buy it at the gas station rest stop. Next, it's on the shelf next to the potato chips hmm. along the auto route. That it is a very ubiquitous food in a way that we don't think of it in that way. And so it has a very different meaning hmm. in terms of its class status. Um, most people do eat it at least a little bit on a cracker at Christmas time or at New Year's. Um, and it's being marketed now for things like birthdays and Bastille Day and Valentine's Day and other special occasions, thinking about when we would have, you know, a glass of champagne or Prosecco or mm -hmm. some variant of that, that it's relatively inexpensive. Um, the inter interesting dynamic that I found is in terms of stratification in French society is between different ethnic groups and foie gras. There have been protests over a couple of different companies um, attempting to market halal foie gras mm. in different supermarkets and different kind of more nationalist groups protesting outside of shops who are marketing and selling halal foie gras. But at the same time, there have been statements from leaders of Muslim groups in France saying that they are encouraging their um, followers to eat foie gras. And they see foie gras, eating foie gras as becoming part of France, mm. that it is French. And so by consuming it, they're showing their Frenchness. It's very interesting. Um, now, I'd like to move to something you've been working on a little bit more recently. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand you've been working with two other authors on a study of identity formation in the craft beer industry in the United States. Could you give us a preview of that upcoming paper? Um, and I'm particularly interested to hear if you see any similarities in the way that maybe mm -hmm. craft beer mm -hmm. and foie gras get used to create cultural meaning. Yes, definitely. Um, well, most people in the U.S. don't know what foie gras is, but many people do know what beer is, so <laughs> it's fun to be switching over to this topic. Um, the team is actually, there's five of us now instead of, instead of four, instead of three. Hmm. And what we are doing is looking at how organizational identity matters for ideas about what craft beer is and what it has become. Um, there was an amazing paper published about 15 years ago on the microbrewery movement that we are trying to build on, thinking about how the industry has changed, is changing, and how the politics of authenticity and culture really play a role in the ways that this industry is taking shape and who is responding negatively to the ways that the industry is taking shape. And so the current paper that we have is analyzing reviews on beeradvocate.com and we have data for every beer by brewery over time by reviewer. Our N is something like 40,000. Wow. Um, as an ethnographer, I know very little about how <laughs> that part of it works. Um, but I'm personally interested in ideas about identity and organizational identity and how the meaning of what beer is for people has changed and what it becomes an indicator of. And in many ways, it's an indicator of consumption status, not just class status, but consumption status, how people identify themselves, how people, and how people interact with the market. That none of these 
microbrews and craft brews and nano brews that are springing up all over the country. In Raleigh, where I am, there's something like 15 new ones in the past year or two. Mm -hmm. um, none of this would happen if people didn't want to drink this beer. And so we are also looking at websites for um, a sample of breweries throughout the country over time to look at how they are marketing themselves and how they have been pitching themselves in terms of their identities and how they are constructing themselves as being tied to place and tied to ideas about authenticity. Well, it sounds very cool. And uh, Michaela DeSusi, thank you for stopping by Office Hours. My pleasure. <laughs>